Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Boys and girls, this is episode number 100. Hard to believe we've made it this far, but today I am very excited to welcome back all the way from Bloomington, Indiana, recent transplant from Austin, Texas, the one and only Armin Vitt. You probably know him from his website Under Consideration, where he maintains some of the best and most interesting rebranding and branding reviews on the internet today. It's called Brand New, and Armin, who is one half of the Brand New team, is on today's conversation. So without further ado, please enjoy part two with Armin Vitt. Okay, guys, I am very excited to welcome back Mr. Armin Vitt for a second conversation on Obsessed with Design. Armin, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah. So you just got done with an amazing vacation. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, so we went to Costa Rica, um, took the whole, you know, me, my wife and two kids, like our first official vacation as a family. It's the first time that I traveled with my kids that I don't take a laptop. Um, and it was both frightening and, you know, liberating at the same time. But yeah, it was nice to actually send an out of the office email out of responder for the first time in ages. Um, (laughs) it's weird because like you, you see all the emails coming in and you, I know that there's an auto reply saying I'm out of the office, but there's still this kind of, uh, compulsion to reply. And uh, it took me a couple of days to just let go. (laughs) Um, like by the end of the vacation, we're like, you know, screw it. I'll reply on in five days and it's fine. You know, the the world will go on. (laughs) So. I appreciated that in spite of the fact that you didn't have a computer with you, you were still posting all of the amazing creatures and photos of the kids and all the the usual stuff to social media. But it was cool seeing all the the frogs and crazy things that you were encountering down there. Yeah, no, it's not. I mean, you can't let go completely off of the connected world. I mean, you still want to share, especially like with, uh, I think, with my parents so that they knew that we were still alive. Um, You know, because I think uh, (laughs) like... Whenever I took a vacation, when I was like under my parents, uh, uh, you know, when they used to take care of me, like they, they would know where I was, what hotels I was staying at. But this one, they had no idea. So it was one way of say, of uh, letting them know that we're still alive day by day while also <laughs> showing, you know, cool pictures of frogs at night. So uh, not all bad. We could talk about Costa Rica for the whole time, but maybe just for... Uh, maybe there is a fraction of our audience who is not familiar with what Under Consideration does. So maybe give us the short pitch of what you guys are up to right now. Yeah, Under Consideration is a very small uh, design firm of consisting of me and my wife and business partner. We're both graphic designers. We work from home, so we don't have any overhead or employees or interns or anything like that, uh, but we still do work for clients a little bit. Uh, most of our effort goes into maintaining our the blog brand new, which is about logo redesigns and uh, doing the brand new conference, uh, which is a yearly event, which has been held since 2010. 
And um, it's a conference about logo identity and branding that has grown from, you know, 500 people, like one day conference of 500 people to a two day conference of a thousand people. So it's become our main, like the main driver of uh, what we do, you know, how we spend our time, how we make money and where we spend our energy and creativity. Well, I thought one of the things that was really interesting and um, just coincidentally, I had a chance to um, hear Bryony speak a few weeks ago in Indianapolis because you guys recently moved your headquarters from Mm -hmm. Austin, Texas to um, Bloomington, Indiana. So when I saw that announcement, I thought, oh, somebody got a job at IU. (laughs) And then (laughs) I found out, no, that's not the case at all. So tell us a little bit about relocation and, and how that's impacted your business. Yeah, so we we were in Austin for eight years. Uh, we moved right as Austin started to pick up in terms of uh, popularity, and it wasn't that we were pioneers or trendsetters in any way. We just you know moved there because it seemed nice, and it didn't seem like it was ta- going to take off the way it did. Uh, and we moved from New York, so anything in contrast to New York is amazing in terms of the space. <laughs> the value that you get for your money in terms of living space. But what happened over the next eight years was that Austin grew a lot. Um, you know, population was extreme. Traffic got in super intense. Um, and we're, we started to feel the same thing that we felt in New York where it was, we're paying, we're paying too much to live in a place that may not be worth it. And, you know, it, it is worth it. Austin is worth the price of admission. But to do what we do, which is stay, you know, very independent, keep an office of two, just, you know, take on select client work and just do a conference. In order to do that, we have to have a, you know, the minimum overhead possible. Um, and we felt that staying in Austin was going to be, was going to make, make it hard to sustain that kind of, uh, business setup that we have. So we started looking at, options to leave Austin and you know we kind of like knew we wanted to go to a smaller market smaller city um within real within like we didn't set out to find the smallest town possible uh in the U.S. and I you know, it's not the smallest town in the U.S. <laughs> but compared to New York compared to Austin it's pretty damn small so we you know we selected at this place as a place to that seemed good to have uh, to raise kids to send them to school to you know to public school um the housing you know we have twice the space for half the mortgage we have a proper office a workshop uh we have more space than we know what to do with so that has kind of like freed up a little bit of the like the sense of being clustered in a small space and again austin is pretty it was pretty good, but you know, once you start growing and you, once you start make, wanting to make more things, um, I mean, we just felt that in Austin we couldn't grow anymore in terms of uh, doing more things in house, <laughs> literally and metaphorically this time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, moving here has been great in terms of now we have the space, now we have a little less financial pressure to maintain, you know, a house that was costing us a lot of money back uh, back in Austin. And this is like, you know, with space that we have now, we, we set up a sill screen setup. Uh, we bought a laser cutter. So we have more space to do more of the things that we're enjoying doing now. Um, so yeah, it's been great. So I got to think that that takes some pressure off of the conference too. So you don't have to 
focus on being so profitable for, for each show, or at least there's not the pressure of that when you have fewer burdens kind of back at home. Yeah, it takes away the pressure of it being a mega hit every time. And, you know, ideally, it is a great financial and uh, cultural hit for the people that, I mean, financial is great financial for us. It's a great event for people, uh, but there is not that huge pressure that if we sell 200 tickets less, we're going to be screwed, which was the feeling that we're starting to get mm-hmm. in Austin. Like we're, we're starting to planning, we're start planning what we're going to do in 2017 and 18. We're like, well, you know, for any reason, people don't attend in the next two years. And we keep with this idea that we're, that the conference is growing. And if it doesn't, we're going to be screwed. Um, so yeah, that takes away some of the pressure from that, that, you know, if one or two years don't go as planned, you know, we won't be in such a bad position. Well, it's just a an unpaid commercial. Um, I've been to four of the brand new conferences in New York and San Francisco and twice in Chicago. And it is just absolutely one of the best values for the buck. And, you know, always amazing speakers. You guys do a, just a top notch job putting together and promoting and the identity and just the way the story kind of is woven throughout the conference. So if you are listening and have considered going to brand new and have not been, you got to go this year back in, uh, back in New York this year, right? New York. Yeah. So thank you for the kind words. And yeah, we, the thing is that again, because it's the main thing where, how we make money, we make money on it um, in part because of the speakers, but I think a lot of it has to do with the, uh, passion and commitment we put to it that we enjoy doing it. And I think people appreciate that. And it sets a little bit of a different tone from other conferences. And uh, this is not to knock other conferences, but, you know, those are, uh, you know, they're more businesses run by, you know, either large companies, you know, think of how Design Live or, you know, AIGA, which is run by volunteers. Whereas here, it's like, it's just me and Bryony and, if it doesn't work, we're really screwed. So we want to make it work. <laughs> we enjoy doing it. And, you know, the fact that we're, we do the materials, then we're on stage being the host, then we're behind the stage doing all the technical stuff and front of house stuff for the venue. Um, I think people enjoy that and appreciate that, that it's, uh, you know, it comes literally from the heart. Do you have any parts of the conference that are kind of like your least favorite or your most favorite, you know, is, is the onstage amazing for you or is the prep for it the amazing part or what, what do you get like really excited and really freaked out about? I think the kind of the really worst part is the week before the conference where everything has to align perfectly in terms of having all the materials ready getting all making sure that all the sponsors get the materials to the venue uh and at the same time at the same time you're trying to you know get all these logistics in place we have call after call you know phone call after phone call of people asking hey i'm not going to be able to make it until 10 a.m is it okay if i show up late yes it's fine uh people are like are you going to serve coffee yes is it going to be decaf yeah sure um, so it's just like phone call for com- phone call of uh, really bizarre but understandable questions that maybe people have, and you just and then people want to cancel, and then they want to, you know, their cat dies, and they want to get a refund. Like, well, you know, I can't lose money because your cat died. Like, I didn't have anything. I didn't kill your cat. <laughs> uh, 
so it, it can be really frustrating in the sense that you know some people may be frustrated that they can't go and you can't do anything for them. Um, so that's kind of like the least fun part of it. The most fun is definitely the two days off, like when we, you know, 9 a.m., it starts, there's that rush of excitement that is happening, it's happening live, nothing, you know, hopefully everything goes right, and usually we've been lucky that everything does, so it's really an enjoyable process of seeing, you know, the six months worth of work actually happen and people enjoying it, and, you know, it's, uh, that's the best feeling, and also the like actually seeing the things that we put together because usually the things like the name badges or the sometimes the program like it don't, we don't see the finished piece until the day before the event because we usually have some sort of hand assembly at the last minute and just like that moment was like hey we have a thousand pieces of the same thing and they all look awesome uh, <laughs> or we think it looks awesome uh, so those are really good moments that are brief and uh, keep you going for the you know all the rest of the stuff that's all about not losing your shit. <laughs> well, I think as, as you told me at the top of the show, before we started recording that Brian, you know, off in the basement, hammering away at something as we can, we can even hear a little bit in the background, which is, which is <laughs> totally fine because it lends to the authenticity of the story. But do you want to give us a preview at all of, of what to expect for, for New York? And I, I guess all of that for, for those of you who haven't been to one of these shows, these, the identity and, the badges and everything is always designed kind of around a theme. And there's always something I think most marketing and design departments would just say, this is an unsustainable way to put on a show, but you guys just, <laughs> just kill it every year. So I'm curious what, what you're yeah. thinking about for, uh, for New York. Yeah. So this year, um, you know, the, the main concept is kind of dumb or, you know, maybe a little bit cliche in that New York is the concrete jungle, but that's, uh, you know, when we thought of that, like, Hey, concrete, what can we do with, uh, concrete? So that's what Brian is doing right now. We, uh, we got some molds made for the, I'm not going to give a lot away, but they're for the program and for the badges. So we're pouring concrete into all these molds and we have to make a thousand of each thing. <laughs> and the, the banging is to level the concrete. You know, when you pour it, oh, right. you want to level it and take out all the bubbles. So that's what she's, <laughs> that's the hammering. <laughs> and we have to do, uh, what is it? We have to do 2000 pieces of concrete in the next 135 days. So we have to do. You know, we have to do them every day and it takes a while because we only have a certain amount of molds because they're really expensive to make. So every day we have to pour concrete, let it sit overnight, take out the result and then refill them every day. So that's going to be our reality for the net from here until September. Man, that is, that is impressive. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, as you said, it is. Any other, like if a client, if we had a client who had a conference and they said, we want you to design our identity, the identity for our event and the materials, we would not come up, we would not suggest this kind of things because they're expensive, they're very time consuming, and only if your life depends on it, would you do it. <laughs> So if a client said like, "Hey, I'll, I'll give you ten thousand, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to do this," like be like, "Nah, you know, it's way too much hard work, uh, just for money." I mean, it, it would it would be nice money, but it just, it really takes more than 
the financial re- reward. Like you want to do it because you love it. So speaking of which, I mean, you guys have had a lot of little projects and directions between FPO and some things that are still living and some things that you've killed off. And Brian, you talked about this a little bit when she was in Indy. Um, but I'm curious, you know, outside of the success factor, what, what have been kind of your, your pet things, you know, what, have you had a favorite conference or a favorite publication you've created or something that you look back with the most pride? I think one small thing, like it was a one-off project and it was, um, an infographic about the show, the TV show, Sons of Anarchy, that I did a poster and it was a whole thing about who killed who and how. And, you know, if it were like Downtown Downtown Abbey, when there there was like 20 characters, it wouldn't be a big deal. But here there were like 130 characters listed and they they died, gruesome deaths. Um, And I was, you know, really, I was a huge fan of the show, which is a soap opera for dudes. Um, (laughs) So it's not like the most highbrow show at all. It's like, especially the first three seasons are really, really bad, but then it gets really good. And then it gets preposterous in how much uh, killing there is. And, you know, it's not a subject to, uh, you know, glorify in any way, but I just thought, is there a way to visualize the mayhem that happens in this show as a poster? And it was completely done. It was one of, it was a, what you call a pet project or a passion project, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, the term may be. And it was just that I just wanted to do it. Uh, you know, we sold enough to make the money back, not to make the hours back or like the hour, the time spent on it back, but I just wanted to do it, see what had happened. The, you know, the creator of the show saw it and tweeted about it. And that was it. That's what I wanted. I just wanted for him to acknowledge that it existed and that mm-hmm. what he did made me do something else. And, uh, so that's, I like those kind of things where something else, you know, you're so much into something else that it provokes you to do something for someone else. So like the people that bought it thought like, oh, that's cool. Uh, so I like that cycle of, you know, yeah, celebrating things that exist and then other people celebrating the things that you're celebrating. I don't know if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but uh, I like that cycle of, one thing driving the next and, um, you know, just going with what you're into and, you know, seeing what comes out of it. Sure. Well, I think that gets into something that, that maybe not a lot of people know you guys for, which is, you know, being a design firm also. So I think brand new is probably where most people have exposure to you, but how do you determine, you know, with, with the types of, conferences that you put on and the amount of work that it takes to do that how do you gauge which projects when it comes to client work are good fits for for the two of you and you know how do you kind of rank rank and order those yeah the one thing that i'll say is that we don't get asked to do much design work by clients so we're not approached a lot because we never we we like if you go to our website it doesn't scream, hey, we're designers, we want to do work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the few clients that come across, so far they've been good and interesting, um, whether it's an identity project or a book. We're like, sure, we'll do it because it sounds fun. Um, so it has to be something that, if it's an identity project and not just like a log, you know, like one log on that's it, because that's not 
on? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll usually say yes, just because that's our, you know, because of brand new, you know, we're exposed to so much identity that it's nice to be able to somehow apply all the stuff that I say about other people's work <laughs> into our own, <laughs> our own work. Uh, so it's a, kind of like a nice challenge. Uh, and we have a couple, uh, this, I think this year, like we just, we're in the middle of one identity project for a theater here in town, and we're going to do another one for um, kind of like an incubator place. So in this year, we're going to do more client work than we did in the last five years. And both of those we sought out because we thought those would be fun to do. That's the kind of work we want to do. So yeah, we're not, we're not like a traditional design firm that has to really gauge client work and determine how you know, some people have uh, columns that they need to fill, whether it's profitable, enjoyable, uh, you know, or, is, or, or if it's going to get them notoriety. And I guess, you know, to a degree we have, you know, we use those same parameters, but, you know, we're not that strict because we are not faced with that decision as often as others. Mm-hmm. But the short answer is, yeah, I mean, it has to be fun. It has to be interesting. It has to be something where we feel we can make a difference Personally, not so that, you know, where our, where we feel that our involvement, involvement would be good for them more than someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that may be like a too narcissistic thing to say, but, you know, just that with some clients, we feel like, oh, you know, we could really nail this. Uh, and with others, uh, every now and then we've had like people inquire about packaging. They say like, mm-hmm. you know, the, I could do it. I could probably figure it out, but you're going to be better served by someone else that really loves packaging and that knows the ins and outs of the whole thing. Um, whereas if you, you know, if we do it, it's not going to be as good as it could be done by someone else that really cares about packaging. And when you guys take on client work, are you kind of both in the project together or do you kind of divvy things up and say, I'm going to do this part and I want you to work on that? Or, you know, does it kind of become yours or hers? It, we start, usually we'll go in together at the beginning and the first phase of trying to figure out what things are um, is between both of us. And eventually I take over mostly because I spend more time at my desk than Bryony because she's still, you know, after the kids come out of school, she takes care of the kids, she takes mm-hmm. them around to their after school activities and I still work for another you know, two, three hours. So that gives me a little bit more time to spend on things. Uh, and, it's, you know, once you establish the, the direction and what the principle of the thing is, then the execution is what requires just like time sitting at a computer and doing it. So like ultimately, some most of the executions I end up doing, but anything, nothing that I do goes out the door without Bryony looking at it over my shoulder or, you know, uh, discussing things, which is great because sometimes I'll do things. So I'll be like, hey, this is great. And Brian just looks at it like, no, that's shit. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> so it's good to have that buffer. And also, because every now and then I'll think something looks great, but uh, not just it looks like shit, but it doesn't make sense. Uh, just because I get, you know, it's easy to get caught up in your own train of thought that you forget that. Not everyone is thinking the same thing as you, and they look at it for the first time, and they're like, eh, that doesn't make sense. Um, so in that way, it's collaborative to the end. One of the things that we talked about last time was this kind of maniacal schedule that you keep 
<laughs> Since you've moved to Bloomington, do you find that you're still on a pretty strict uh, timeline throughout your day? Yeah, and that doesn't seem to change. I mean, it's, uh, I think, the one, you know, because it's still like wake up at five, from five to seven, do uh, brand new, like writing the, the posts, then, war, you know, go for a run, work, 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 kids come home, dinner, and then do some emails again uh, at the, you know, after dinner. So now I have, maybe I find that I have an extra half hour, 45 minutes to maybe watch some TV at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, case by case basis. But yeah, you know, still just, you know, working as much as, as we can. Um, again, because it's, it's only the two of us. So there's no, there's no one to hand off things to. And there's no one that can pick up the slack if you're not feeling like doing something, like you have to do it. So uh, in order to maintain that flexibility, flexibility that we have and stay independent you know the price we pay is that we just have to work a little bit extra and i'm not saying that you know other designers don't work extra but yeah we just work a lot of hours so i think there have been lots of creatives in history who have said man i would love to be a fly on the wall and know how that work was received by the client when it was first pitched and so you guys decided to create an event around this concept so tell us about that yeah, so we're the so the event is called first round as a nod to that first round of showing a client uh, your design ideas, whether it's one or three or five, whatever it is. Everybody has a different way of doing it, um, and you hear stories from you know, so you know, like the legendary the legend that you know Paul Rand just showed up with like one hundred page bound books showing one solution that by the end of the book you were like well there's no you know no other solution possible you are absolutely right mr Rand. Uh, but you know none of us are paul Rand, so we all have to figure out how to make convincing pdfs and keynotes and presentations that will convince clients of our work but there's no because it's a process it's something that no one shares there's no you all you only learn it if you work for someone that does it or if you've done it by because you have to and you haven't figured out how to do it. Uh, so there's kind of like this mystery around it that I think it would be it's going to be very, very beneficial for other designers to see how other designers present their work. Um, and I think at first we thought, well, you know, none of the speakers that we're going to ask are going to say, yes, I would love to share my trade, basically what's a trade secret, because, you know, like, Logo ideas or logo sketches, you know, everybody can come up with those. And I think the real, kind of like the real, or one of the hardest things about design work is getting your client to see your ideas clearly and understand the potential of them. And a lot of that just comes from that first round of presentations where you're explaining, you know, how you arrived at something. And I think that's what separates good designers from really great designers, that ability to, you know, convey what you're trying to do with your work. So at first we thought everybody's going to say no, uh, but to our surprise, everybody wanted, everybody said yes. And I think it's going to be very exciting to be able to see how, you know, some great designers in New York share the, you know, show their work for the first time to clients. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. Uh, I think if we, 
you know, empowering other designers to use those same tools. And that doesn't mean that they're going to copy presentations page by page, but, you know, finding little uh, techniques or uh, a way to sequence a presentation. I think that's really valuable for designers and, you know, we'll make better work, then the world is a little bit better. You've got like 12 different designers presenting, right? So there's different live teams and clients in the room. Have you given the group's guidelines or feedback on kind of how to how to structure this or how much time to allow the, the clients for feedback or any expectations on how that's all going to go down? Oh, um, no, so we're not... Um, so you, th- you think that there's going to be cl- designers presenting for the very first time to a client? Oh, so this is more like this is how I presented for the first time to this client. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, no, so these are, yeah, one of the things that we said was the project that you show should be all, it has to be old. It has to already exist so that there's no conflicts of work leaking uh, because, you know, invariably someone's going to take a picture and post it on Instagram. Mm -hmm, Um, So we wanted to make sure that there wasn't any potential conflict of timing for some work to be released. And uh, no, I can't, if that, that would be an interesting event, but I think that would be really hard to pull off in terms of people wanting to show their work live with a client, with clients giving feedback, you know, in real time. I think that would be, you know, mind blowing for everyone involved. And, uh, you know, even with our experience doing events and with our goodwill in the design industry, I don't think anyone mm-hmm. would uh, sign up for that. Um, the closest that we have is uh, Stephen Doyle. He is showing, he asked his client permission to show the first round of a logo that hasn't made it live. Mm. So that's the closest we have. But he already has feedback on the logo. So it's not, happening live live but that's the closest to you know unpublished work that we have yeah very cool and i know we had something similar in chicago last year with brand new where there was some some identity that wasn't quite live yet it was soon to be published but we had to you know tell the audience okay don't tweet this (laughs) did that did that go over pretty well or were there any hiccups from that no, it was surprisingly, people were very respectful. And, you know, even Scott Stoll, who was the one that uh, made the request, he was so surprised that no one tweeted about it. Uh, but then he was also pissed because he, not pissed, but he was uh, disappointed that he had no feedback after his talk because no one tweeted or posted anything. Uh, oh. Not even like, oh, Scott was great. I mean, there were some of those, but it wasn't as much as with other speakers who were like, ah, oh, well, you know. Leave, not leave and learn, but you know, he got the clients. He was able to fulfill the client's <laughs> request, but he he didn't get that. Uh, he said like he didn't get his dopamine hit of uh, instant feedback <laughs> from social media. Well, for whatever it's worth, I heard plenty of conversation after his presentation yeah. about how great it was. So, I think those conversations were happening just yeah. at, at 140. Yeah. So what what's kind of the the speaker philosophy with brand new, how do you, um, is it just who's available or how do you decide, you know, with all the great folks in branding, who, what kind of personalities you want to bring to the stage or what are maybe even specifically, what are your thought processes about New York this year? Like, how do you decide who to invite? 
Yeah, usually. So what happened at the beginning was, all right, we need to bring in the big personalities to draw in the crowds so that, you know, the, at the time, 2010, that was Michael Barut, Eric Speakerman, Paul Scher, the people from Wolf Allens, because that's when, you know, Wolf Allens was at, kind of like at, at its peak in terms of uh, controversial design projects, mm-hmm. AOL, London, et cetera. So kind of like the first two or three conferences were a lot about the big names. And that was great because people were like, oh, yes, of course I want to go see that. But eventually, um, what, what we've been noticing the past three or four years is that we've run out of big names, which is perfectly fine. Like we don't have, uh, any problems with that, but there's, there's a, a finite amount of celebrity identity designers. Um, you know, one thing is celebrity designers. And, you know, if, if our conference was general design, you know, design in general, we might have a broader pool to pull from. But in this case, like we've run out of brand name people that you recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we go by who's doing the most interesting work, who is relevant in terms of where they work or what their clients are, what are stories that haven't been told. So, you know, for example, we have a couple of guys from Russia coming in that, you know, they've probably never spoken, they've never spoken in the U.S. We've never seen them speak. We have never even exchanged emails with them before inviting them. But their work seems to be pretty wild, pretty interesting. And Mm -hmm. we we, usually, you know, (laughs) many, some of the people that we invite, we've never met in person. We don't know if they're going to be great speakers, but we assume that if their work is good and they're able, I think it ties in a little bit with a first round conference, like if their work is good and they're able to present it to a client, so they should somehow be able to convey their work to a bunch of designers. And it usually works out pretty well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so we never go by personality of person because we really never know what we're going to get. I mean, some people we know, but now, you know, the last two, three years, we've had more people that we just don't know. Uh, or as Brian says, uh, wild cards that, you know, you cross your fingers that are going to be great. Like, for example, uh, in Chicago, Ivan Garcia from uh, uh, from Mexico, their work uh, from Futura, I mean, their work is great, The but we had no idea. And he, he was hesitant about presenting in English. So we had no idea what was going to happen. And it turned out to be mm-hmm. one of the best presentations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. And I think his uh, like nervousness about presenting in English uh, was very endearing to the crowd. And that mm-hmm. really worked mm-hmm. in his favor. So, like, again, you never know. You just have you know, a good feeling about it. And you hope, for the most part, we've been right. But, yeah, if the, the general approach is we want to have a balance of large either a large design firm or large clients medium small a range of local national and international obviously a range of men and women and also a variety of work you know whether it's a you know very boutique design you know hand lettering or stuff like that or the complete opposite which is big brands and, you know, guidelines and stuff like that and something in between. So we just tried to find a good mix that repre- represents the work that's been done 
in the last year or two from a lot of it come from thing, projects we've featured on brand new. Other stuff come comes from just you know that we spend a lot of time online looking at people's uh, portfolios and you know we're like hey you know these people these designers have never been on brand new but their work seems solid and uh, you know they seem like fine normal people uh, on Instagram so why not let's go for it um, yeah so it's finding finding a balance of variety variety that will appeal to as many people as possible or not to appeal as many people as possible but to hit different aspects and that as many people as possible will enjoy that variety do you ever get i'm asking this question because i've gotten some some criticism in the past about kind of the the male to female ratio do you ever get specific criticism about well you don't have enough of this group or this people or this type like and i'm I'm sure you don't ever intend for that. I'm just curious if you hear that feedback. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we hear pretty much every year. And uh, I think there was one well, after, I think it was after maybe 2013. I think 2012 or 13, we only had like two women and six men. And after that, you know, we got enough criticism or feedback. Uh, we're like, well, this can't keep happening. I mean, yes, and it, I think it was a few mm-hmm. years before, you know, kind of like the the emphasis that there is on it now. Uh, so now we, it really we don't have to think about it that much. It's just uh, you know we just find a balance and um, uh, go with it. And so we do have to make we've been we've made an effort to make it more even. Uh, but at the end of you know. You run into lack of, of, especially like if you go from graphic design, there's a, you know, as I said, in graphic design, there's like a bigger pool of people to draw from. Once you get down to identity mm-hmm. and branding, that pool gets smaller. So it becomes really difficult to find that ideal balance of gender, race, um, and everything. So we try the best we can, but it's not always uh, the ideal situation that most people want to see. Yeah, I mean, you're obviously working from the pool of a small group of people to start with, and then you subtract out people who yeah. aren't available. <laughs> so now you're with a, down to an even smaller group. But of course, we we shoot for a very yeah. even representation yeah. as well. And sometimes yeah. we've been really good at it, and sometimes not so good. But yep, maybe shifting gears a little bit. I'm curious if there are any brands, as you are the king of the brand review, that that have really delighted you in recent memory or um, brands that you feel like have just done an outstanding job with a rebrand. Yeah, so I think the kind of like the last, um, the most recent one that got a m- majority of uh, favorable reviews and and feedback was uh, Chobani, the Greek yogurt, and I think they they really mm-hmm. nailed it. And they, I think they managed to shift, you know, what Airbnb did back in two thousand fourteen, where they, I think they ushered in the era of the geometric sensorif, um, and then everybody followed. Or you know, mm-hmm. more companies went that route. I think what you know. Chobani could have gone that route easily, but then they went some, you know, to what they did, which was like a bold, chunky serif and, you know, warm illustrations and the off-white. And I think they really nailed it and were able to take some rising trends in identity 
and kind of like really explode them into a really significantly large uh, identity program. I think they really nailed it. And now, now that they're, the new packaging is on, uh, like fully on the fridges at grocery stores, it looks so, so good. Like that mm-hmm. block of uh, Chobani products, it just looks amazing. So I think they, that's been, for me, that's been the highlight of the last year, you know, maybe like even the last two years. So what about maybe um, typical pitfalls? So when, when you see lots of big brands, you know, there may be as many misses or depending on how optimistic you are, maybe there are, <laughs> there are more misses than hits. But um, what, what are some of the most common like approaches that you think lead to a miss in a rebrand? I think the, the most typical thing that happens is when bigger if not bigger corporations or corporations that are not meant to be fun and friendly and accessible, they use a logo that they think is fun, friendly, and accessible. And that usually means like happy <laughs> colors and uh, lowercase everything and, you know, fun, charming illustrations. Like, no, if you're an insurance company, be a damn insurance company and make me feel safe. I don't want to be your friend. Uh, because we're never going to be friends. I give you money, you fight to then give me money back when I need it. So just be that, like be that <laughs> asshole corporation that you are. Accept it, embrace it. Let's not try to, you know, pretend that you're something else. Um, I think you know something like uh, Mr. Cooper, um, which was it was like a mortgage company and then they they were they were called Morningstar or something. I can't remember which one they were, but mm-hmm. they were blue and boring and they had a name that sounded boring and it sounded like a mortgage. And then they were branded to Mr. Cooper to give it like an actual literal personality and they went with a bubbly look but like no like just don't try so hard um, because that's not the relationship that you want with certain uh, brand. So I think that's the biggest thing where people, companies try to be something they're not because they see other companies succeeding like that. Mm-hmm. So again, like going back to Airbnb or Google, where they went with the happy colors and the geometric sensory with a you know, slightly bolder way to make them feel more, you know, a little bit more personality. And then you have everyone going that direction. Like, no, it doesn't work because there's not that you don't have the personality that supports that visual expression. So, you know, it's just the, the idea that design can, and, and well, design can change perceptions, but sometimes, you know, it's not the, it's really not going to be the only thing that does the trick. Like the whole company has to shift how they act uh, or how they're perceived. And sometimes like, no matter how good the design is, you can't just get over the, pre-existing preconceptions about some company. Sure. Well, I'm sure we asked you this question last time, but we'll have to go back and compare notes and see how it compares. But I'm curious what you find that you are most obsessed with right now. Uh, Right now, what would it be? Actually, which is so personally, when I think it, for me personally, it's about being able to work with people. Uh, because when I was in Austin, I think for eight years, 
And again, because we're small, we don't work, we don't have employees, we don't work with clients. We just kind of like got too much into our own shell and had little interaction with anyone else. Uh, so moving here to Bloomington, which is a smaller mm-hmm. market, way, way smaller market. I mean, you run into the same people at a grocery store, the gas station, wherever. So I've been a little bit obsessed about learning how to build relationships again. And it makes me sound like a curmudgeon, which to a high degree I am. Like I, I have a really hard time dealing with people. Um, <laughs> and it's not because I think I'm better than anyone. I just have, I can be socially awkward and inept at most times. So I'm doing a really concerted effort to get out to actually network. Like the idea of networking for me in Austin was non-existent. Mm. Like I wouldn't go out, but now... Like I set up lunch meetings with people and I try to meet. If someone says, hey, would you like to meet so-and-so? Like in Austin, I would have said like, no, why would I want to do that? Uh, <laughs> and, and now it's like, yes, uh, <laughs> I'll make time to have lunch with someone that I don't know. That might, They might annoy me. They might uh, make me upset just for being <laughs> alive. Uh, and again, it's not. It's just like I have a hard time in social situations and it may not seem like that because I'm on stage at the conference and I do speaking things. But so when I'm isolated, I'm fine. But like one-on-one situations with people, I'm a, I have a hard time. So I'm making a, a real effort to change that and build good relationships in this town that hopefully we can make a difference um, for the people that live here through design. And, you know, because you come here and a lot of it is looks the same way as it did you know, 30 years ago, and there's so much opportunity for this town to, you know, be a little bit more vibrant. So hopefully we can do a little bit of that. But in order to do that, we have to build relationships. And that, so that's what I've been uh, kind of like, obs- and it, maybe it's not a, an obsession because I, I would still prefer to stay home and watch TV uh, or have lunch by myself. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's all relative. So that, that's what I've been uh, doing an effort on this past uh, six or eight months. Excellent. Well, before we let you go, maybe you can um, remind our listeners all the places they can track you guys down online and get tickets for first round and brand new in New York. Yeah. So under consideration.com, kind of like the launching path, you know, from there we have links to everything. Um, Instagram and Twitter were at UCLLC. Um, or if you want to see pictures of our kids and dogs, so you can go to uh, at Armin Vitt or at Bryony GP. That's B R Y O N Y G P. Um, so those are the more personal accounts. But uh, and we, every now and then we post uh, things that have to do with work. But yeah, UCLLC is the main place where we post regular updates. Excellent. Well, Armin, it was fun getting a chance to catch up and I wish you much success in all of your concrete pouring and form fitting over the next (laughs) few months. I appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that's show number 100 in the books. If you want to hear some more of Armin, we had him first on the show back on episode number 10, so it seems appropriate that he would also make another appearance on episode number 100. 
You can get all of today's show notes on our website at obsessedshow.com. And if you haven't already, while you're there, add your email address to our newsletter. I'll update you on some of my favorite new episodes, as well as some of the cool things that I find in my daily obsessions. Twitter is one of my favorite ways to receive recommendations for new guests. Tweet at Obsessed Show and I'm at Josh Miles. Let us know who you think we should interview next. Head over to iTunes to subscribe to Obsessed with Design. We'd love to have a rating and review to help others find the show. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. And our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit BrassyBroad.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.